Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 160 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Self-Advocacy, an interview with Max Noir. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So Matt, this is really a fascinating podcast with a young woman who was betrayed on a number of different levels, but actually turned her betrayal into this powerful self-advocacy tool. Rich, what really stood out for me in this podcast episode with Max is that she gave us a very simple framework for Lyme healing that she used in her own journey and was successful with, and then went into great detail about each component. She talked about the importance of healing emotionally, healing physically, and treating the bacteria, but also re-strengthening your body and building your body back up after being so sick for so long. So Matt, as it turns out, the people who betrayed Max actually gave her a gift. And the gift they gave her was that she assumed responsibility for her own health and then became a self-advocate. And this self-advocacy has become something that's been a powerful trait for Max, both personally and professionally. And as a result of being a strong self-advocate, she is healing from Lyme disease, she is professionally successful, and she's personally successful. So uh, without further ado, Matt, I'm really excited to introduce to our Tick Bootcamp community, the self-advocate, Max Noir. Hey, Max, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me, guys. We're, we're really excited to have you. We've been, uh, we've been a uh, fan of yours for a long time, and we really are happy to have one of the great Lyme disease advocates on our podcast, like uh, so many others. So, Max, talk to us about where you're uh, calling in from today. Today I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, temporarily. I, uh, I tend to move around quite a bit and I'll be returning to my home in Pennsylvania today. <laughs> so, so I understand you largely live a nomadic life. Yes, yes I do. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a pre-pandemic remote job that lets me sort of be where I wanna be uh, when I wanna be there, so. That's, that's what I like. <laughs> so talk to us about some of the places you've gone to on this nomadic existence you've been uh, pursuing over the last couple of years. Oh, man. Um, that's, I, don't, I don't know where to start, but I guess I'll start with China, given that the job that I currently hold is with a China-based company. Um, that's sort of the first place that I found a home away from home feeling. So I tend to return there at least once a year when there is not a pandemic. <laughs> Um, and I just came from Mexico City about a week ago. I've been out of the U.S. for nine months now, um, moving around and sort of remotely working with some colleagues and friends of mine, um, quarantining abroad. So now we're finally back and ready to get vaccinated and see my family. So now you indicated that you're going back to Pennsylvania. Is that where you grew up? Yeah. So I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the forest, which, you know, Lots of ticks live there. <laughs> they sure do. And in fact, I think uh, Pennsylvania now has the um, good fortune or bad fortune, depending on your perspective of having the largest number of Lyme disease diagnoses. So uh, you're going back certainly to Lyme country. Uh, now you're moving back or at least visiting with your family in Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I'm a forest creature. I love walking around, swimming in rivers, hiking. And it definitely makes me nervous. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I constantly think about it and we're always checking each other after we come in from outside. But it's an interesting push-pull relationship I have with my home. Uh, I love it so much, but I'm also a little bit afraid of it. <laughs> so let's talk about your childhood. What was your childhood like in Pennsylvania? My childhood was a lot of playing in leaf piles. Um, 
playing manhunts with my neighbors. <laughs> um, a lot of play. I, I, I grew up with, in a very playful uh, and nature-surrounded environment, which I feel very lucky for. Um, and I would say it wasn't until high school where things started to get a little wonky for me. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk plenty about that. But yeah, very, very natureful uh, existence that I had. <laughs> now, during this nature-filled experience that you had in your childhood, um, did you ever receive any educational information about ticks or Lyme disease? I did not. Um, I I knew it existed. I personally had a, a good family friend who fell very, very, very ill. But I think you know, as a young person and only knowing one uh, person close to me who had sort of been through it. I wasn't yet taking it seriously. Um, and there was definitely no formal education, you know, in schools or, or from parents or anything of, of that sort. So I knew about it, but I didn't understand the magnitude of what the situation could be. So when you say you knew about it, you knew that Lyme disease existed, but you didn't have any educational or any training information that allowed you to protect yourself from Lyme disease. Yes, that's exactly it. I think I had heard some people once say that if you find a tick on you, you know, save it, bring it to your doctor. But most people don't actually find the tick. Um, and even, you know, I'm sure as you know, you can even find the tick and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, that's going to save your life. So, Well, but were you, were you doing anything when you were coming in from playing in the forest or the woods? Were you doing tick checks? Were your, were your parents tick checking you or were you just sort of blissfully living your, your childhood experience in the woods. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember my mom specifically doing a little bit of that, but it was, it was sort of like a, when we remember type of thing and it wasn't very serious. And I think as a child, I was sort of like rolling my eyes, like, why do we have to do this? Like, I don't want my sister looking at me, <laughs> that kind of thing. So well, talk to us about what your vision for your future was when you were growing up in Pennsylvania, meaning what were you dreaming about doing? Yeah, um, actually quite interesting. And I don't know where I came from. Um, I, I grew up in a place where most people don't really tend to leave very often. Um, and from a very, very young age, all I could think about was traveling and I wanted to find a way to have a job that would enable me to do so. So my dream back then was to become a foreign service officer um, and potentially a diplomat eventually and, you know, spend time overseas trying to make the world a better place um, in whatever way, shape or form. So um, let's talk about when your what you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms began to present themselves and how that impacted the pursuit of your dreams as a foreign service officer? Yeah, so I think I was 16 when I started feeling not myself. And, you know, I was like in the thick of being a teenager, being naturally like more tired than I'd ever been. And so I think it was a really confusing, complicated time for me to fall ill um, trying to differentiate what was normal and what all the other kids were going through versus what was a little bit extra on my plate. So when I was 16, I actually had my first seizure and this was during chemistry class. And 
it uh it wasn't a grand mal seizure so nobody really knew no one was able to look at it and say you know they knew what was going on at the time but i was actually walking while having one it seemed in a sort of drunken state swaying side to side through the through the hallways and just hoping that nobody was watching um and i remember my chemistry teacher sort of talking to us and his language just sort of disintegrating and like morphing into this unexplainable uncomprehensible um you know wah, 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 <laughs> kind of thing. the charlie brown teacher yeah yeah um and there was a loud ringing in my ear and i remember i heard the bell and i was actually able to get myself up and walk myself to the, my next class in a very very disoriented um confused and wobbly fashion and when I got there my teacher took one look at me and she had another student walk me to the nurse's office um from there I spent the next two hours trying to understand the nurse's questions and she had to ask me every question about five times and my answers were very slurred and slow and so she had me picked up they took me to the nurse's uh, sorry <laughs> the emergency room the uh the big kid nurse office um and that's when they told me to see a neurologist. I was diagnosed with epilepsy pretty soon. Um, and I remember when I was at my neurologist's office, I remember having this instinctual feeling that there was an unnatural reason for me to have epilepsy. And over the next few months, my neurologist sort of started to confirm that as she sort of basically told my family she had no idea why I had come down with epilepsy out of nowhere with no family history and no, you know, noticeable brain damage in my scans. So that was the start of my journey. Um, I was exhausted all the time. Um, I also lost my ability to read, um, which, you know, being in what was it? 10th or 11th grade of high school. It's a very, very, very bad time to stop knowing how to read. Not that there is a good time. Um, but, you know, on top of this, I'm also taking these really intense anti-seizure medications that are just magnifying all of the symptoms. Um, yeah. So it, it was a very hard time. So Max, talk to us about how first your pre-seizure symptoms that included fatigue were impacting your life, both, uh, I guess, educationally and socially. I, I mean, I would say like, I don't specifically remember having symptoms before my seizures um, that I could differentiate as sort of, you know, different than the sort of high school age stuff that everyone was going through. Um, I do remember being exhausted all the time um, and definitely having some like attention deficit issues and not being able to retain um, information that I was learning. And, you know, previously to this, I was a straight A student. I never studied for a test in my life. I just retained all the information and school was easy. And now suddenly, you know, I'm exhausted. I can't remember anything. I started failing out of math and it was just very, very pivotal time for me as a scholar um, to sort of feel that overnight, I was needing a lot of special assistance um, legally 
Um, you know, I got tested for the sort of like nine hour IQ test in which they determined that I had cognitive decline disorder um, out of where, <laughs> you know, I was able to tell them, but they couldn't tell me. Um, but yeah, so I had lost 21 IQ points um, from the last time I took the test, maybe a year or two prior. So talk to us about how this was impacting you emotionally, meaning when you, when you started to feel this extreme fatigue and it appeared to be different than what your colleagues are facing, how did that make you feel about yourself? And then talk to us about how you felt when you took this IQ test and it showed that you were, um, you were suffering a decline in IQ. Yeah. Um, I would say one of the biggest, you know, emotional obstacles that I've had to overcome, not just at the beginning, but throughout the entire journey um, is sort of this feeling that I'm missing out, that I'm unable to attend in all aspects of life, whether that be attend class, attend work, attend a social gathering. Um, I, I just felt totally incapable and eventually just less than everybody else. Um, I felt myself very quickly falling behind in being able to achieve my dreams. Um, I found myself having to alter my goals and my dreams to be things that, you know, there's nothing wrong with, but in my head, I was putting these new goals way, way, way under my original goals as something to reach for. Um, so yeah, I, I just felt weak and I definitely was feeling sorry for myself at the time, for sure. Now, was this having an impact on you in the relationships you had with family members? Meaning, did you have any family members who thought that you really weren't sick and that you were making it up or something like that? My family, luckily, was extraordinarily supportive. And I think, you know, I would say especially my mom, she was just around it all the time. Um, I lived sort of half and half mom and dad. Um, my dad was supportive too, but he, he, he wasn't around like all of the doctor's appointments and all of the tests and things as much. So my mom was, you know, full of worry all the time to a point that she couldn't hide. And I think that that's something that just like also sort of really hurt um, because one of my biggest worries at the time as well was worrying people I love. I was like way more concerned with their emotions and their worry about me than I was about myself <laughs> and getting better. So having to see my mom like, you know, cry at the doctor's office or cry at home or, or whatever it was, was, was really, I, I started to feel like a burden essentially. It's the best way to put it. Um, and I just wanted to get better so that my loved ones weren't upset. Um, but then there was an incident at school. Um, we can talk about this a little bit later. <laughs> well, what, why don't we approach it now? Talk to us about how, how this is impacting you socially and educationally. Okay. So I, I went on a really, really crazy educational journey from, you know, from diagnosis on, um, once I got the results that I had lost 21 IQ points and I obviously wasn't able to read anymore. And I sort of had a free pass with my nurse's office. She said, come and sleep here whenever you want. So I did that. But what happened was I was sleeping all through the night and also all through the day, uh, during classes. So I was missing 
I was missing 75% maybe of, of certain classes in the middle of the day where I just like hit, hit a wall. And so I started failing out of my public high school, which is, you know, I went to public school all the way up into this point. Um, so we sat down with our, with our school board and some of my teachers and my new IQ results. We looked at them and they said, you know, what can we do? So we ended up putting me in my public school's version of cyber school. Um, now, my mom worked uh, full time, so she was out of the house most of the time. And I was just completely alone while I was really sick um, with Lyme, with seizures. Um, and with the seizure medication I was on, apparently they put me on the worst possible medicine for a young woman that they could have. I became suicidal um, and I was just alone all the time. So it was like this intense isolation met with lots of physical ailment. Um, it was really not a healthy environment for me, but public school wasn't either. So we were, you know, what can we do now? Um, for some reason, the country's only Buddhist high school <laughs> was 10 minutes down the road. Um, <laughs> So I transferred into a private Buddhist high school that had about 20 students in total throughout the four grades. Um, we didn't wear shoes. We called our teachers by their first names. We meditated three times a day. And basically every student at this school in one way or another had something going on that made it so that public school wasn't really working out for them. Um, you know, you had some kids struggling with drugs, you had some people with medical issues, mental um, stresses. So we all sort of had each other's backs. It was a really supportive environment. Um, and, you know, if I had to sleep for a month straight, which happened a lot, my teachers would sort of work with me. They didn't make me read because they knew I couldn't and they'd let me do oral presentations, um, experiential reports and uh it was really great for a while um then there came a time towards the end where our headmaster at the school started giving me giving me a lot of problems um and one of the roots of that problem was that he stopped believing in my illness um i was sick all the time and at the time i was having three seizures a day sometimes um, it was, it was really, really bad. And he sat my parents down in an office one time and told us all that he thought I was faking my seizures. And when that happened, <laughs> I lost immediately. I lost a lot of trust for sort of adults in my life who were supposed to be protecting me. It gave me a lot of PTSD. I still think about this one moment today um, because, you know, followed by that, I had similar experiences with a lot of doctors and to have someone who you're going to and paying, um, you know, who's supposed to be an adult uh, helping you through life and helping to guide you and protect you, who sits there and tells you that you're very essence at the moment that is really, really badly harming you isn't true it's, it's really hard to come back from that in terms of trusting people. Now, 
Let's talk about whether or not there was anything positive that came out of your experience first at this Buddhist school. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we see often in, uh, in our podcast is folks use, use meditation as a vehicle for healing. Mm. Did meditation and the meditation you did at, at this private high school help you on your healing journey? And if so, how? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, we were meditating three times a day, uh, first thing in the morning, right after lunch and last thing in the day. Um, it was really hard. It's really hard to get into, at least for me, for a while. It takes a long time, I think, for most before you can successfully like silence your mind for more than a millisecond. <laughs> Um, so at first it was quite frustrating for me because I just sort of felt like I was never going to be able to do it. Um, but once I was able to let go of that sort of pressure that I was putting on to myself and, you know, sometimes I would let my thoughts drift and I would tell myself that's okay. Um, no one's punishing me for drifting thoughts. <laughs> um, and these moments of pause and silence absolutely had a positive impact on me. I think I needed to take my journey in multiple stages. Um, the first journey was sort of acceptance of self. And I think that I needed to accomplish that before I came anywhere near like physical healing. Um, so it really was a good successful tool for me in strengthening my sort of body and mind relationship and just finding contentment um, in what I like to call my new brain. <laughs> now, Max, you, you, you portray this experience you had with the principal of your private school as one where you felt betrayed by this principal and then betrayed by adults generally. Mm -hmm. um, were there any positive elements of how you responded to that betrayal in helping you on your on your journey for example did you also lose this sort of this um belief that every guy or gal or person in a white coat was going to was going to help you to get better and therefore you recognize that you had the ability to pivot and needed to pivot from, from one form of care to another in a way that you may not have been able to do had you not had this betrayal in your high school years? Yeah, and that's, that's a really beautiful question because, I mean, short answer, absolutely. Um, this type of trauma and mistrust with, you know, starting with my principal and moving forward with other doctors it gave me fear for sure every time I did go to a new person, but I also recognized the amount of self-advocation that I had to learn. And I, I actually think, you know, I'm thankful for that on a daily basis because I think of myself as a person, you know, pre and post Lyme. And I, I think I was a good person. I was a strong person, but I'm like a hundred million <laughs> times stronger and you know, I don't rely anymore on anyone for anything except for myself. Um, and mostly I think of that as a positive thing. Sometimes I think I need to ask for more help. Um, but yeah, and I think that this situation absolutely taught me like, look, um, some people are here for you. 
but so far the the people who you really need to lean on aren't here for you and so you got to you got to kind of go out and and do it and i know that without having that experience and some of the ones to follow i never ever ever would have come out the other side with you know successful treatment and and everything like that no i think this would probably be particularly healthy for somebody on a Lyme disease journey because we know that the medical community is not equipped to diagnose and treat people with Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. So, so many of the people that we interview rely on a system that is not equipped to serve them. And as a result, they, they are sort of caught in this loop of failure. Whereas you had a very different experience during your childhood, which allowed you to have to develop the independence to make your own decisions and to find your own healing tools on this journey. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say Lyme patients are some of the best researchers and, you know, self-advocates that I've ever met, which is funny because a lot of us can't read, but somehow, <laughs> somehow we managed to put the research and the time in um, to, to get to a place where we need to be. So Max, let's talk about self-advocation because that's one of the things that I find to be the most interesting about you. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody has, has articulated self-advocation as well as you have. So let's pause here for a second and talk about what you mean by self-advocation and how that has helped you not only on your Lyme disease journey, but to let people who you're interfacing with know what your needs are and why you need what you need. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, self-advocation is sort of the, the practice of clearly communicating with, you know, important people that are in your life, whether it be a doctor or a, a romantic partner or a sister or friends, um, it can be anybody who you need some sort of relationship of support um, from whether it be mutually or more one-sided in terms of doctors. Um, I mean, <laughs> this all for me, it started with doctors. It started with me marching into a new doctor's office, having all of the facts, having watched documentaries, having had, you know, case studies be read to me by my mom. Um, me being far more Lyme literate than all, most of the doctors that I had visited um, and asking all the right questions. And when they say no, or, you know, you don't have Lyme or whatever it is that they say, I say, hey, no, like give me this specific blood test and then we'll talk next time. <laughs> Um, and what that sort of translated into over time and evolved into is that sort of personifying it in other aspects of my life. One of the things that I like to talk about the most is um, having a romantic relationship while you are sick with Lyme disease. It can be so hard. And I had multiple really long term from you know, three years, um, four years, one year. And it was always the same on my side where I felt like I was not capable of being the fully supportive partner that I wish I could be. And, you know, certain things ended up on my partner side as being something that, you know, they had to sort of fulfill 
more heavily than they should have. And I didn't realize this until about a year ago when I had a little bit more space to sort of process everything. Um, you know, I can only imagine what it's like to, to leave work for the day with your sick loved one in bed and return at the end of the day and have her be in the exact same place, you know, watching Netflix or whatever it was. And to have this happen for like three years or however long and to be sort of like still a kid while this is happening. You know, it's one thing if you you commit your life to someone, you get married and then later on, you know, you're taking care of each other. But, you know, I, you know, I was 18, 19, 17. And my partners at the time, you know, they didn't need to sign up for that. They didn't need to make that sort of commitment. And I understand how hard that was. But that's, you know, just another example of where this sort of self-advocation skill comes in. Um, you need to be able to communicate what you need and what you want, whether or not it's the proper time, but you need to be able to do it. So Max, again, just to sort of tie up this self-advocation piece of your, I think, beautiful journey, and that is you, you swiped away expectation and you began to appreciate your need to let everyone that you were interfacing with know what your needs were. So there was no confusion. You would advocate for yourself and it would allow for a healthy relationship between you as a chronically ill person and the other people in your life, whether they be romantic partners or family members, employers, or anyone else that you're interfacing with, that this self-advocacy tool was something that you developed out of the betrayal you felt early on that allowed you to be successful despite battling a chronic disease. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I knew without self-advocation, without strengthening that tool in my toolkit, um, I was not going to be able to get to the places that I wanted to be, whether that be like a very, very baseline of health or that be, you know, stronger goals like, you know, career and, and things like that. But Max, I think it's really important for us to focus on this for one more minute together, because very few people that we um, that we interview have developed that self-advocacy skill. And certainly very few young people have done that. So talk to us about how you found the strength to identify how to self-advocate for yourself generally. Oh, <laughs> I would say I hit rock bottom. Um, I mentioned before that I went through a period of being suicidal um, I made a minor attempt. I think for me, it was more of, it was more of a cry for help than it was a wholehearted, uh, attempt. And from that, that's a place that I never, you know, no one expects them to ever get there, but you know, that includes me. And so I think when that happened, it was a really intense shock to my system. And the first thing I did was write a letter to my entire family and say like, this is what I did and I need help. And I think from there, I, I just realized, and you know, when you're in this place, unfortunately you sort of have to make the choice, like, do I keep fighting or not? And I'm really, you know, I feel really, really grateful towards myself uh, for deciding to keep fighting. And from there, I just sort of like mentally refused because I am quite stubborn sometimes to let myself get back to that place that I had been. 
So from there, it's sort of been a daily mission and, you know, week by week, um, I think because of that rock bottom, I'm sort of able to reach a little bit higher than I was reaching the week before. So what was it that triggered the change in identity in you from the person who had crashed and considered taking your own life to the person who was now going to not just fight out of that hole, but now become this aggressive self-advocate? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it started out with survival. Um, I loved life so much. I loved it so much um, from the day I was born you know, until right now. So I don't actually lost that. You lost a lot of that life. You lost a lot of what you loved. And that's what brought you down to this, this point where you crashed. So what caused you to reflect on your love for life being greater than the suffering that you were feeling that brought you to that, that crash? It was my, it was my dreams. I think I, I didn't lose them. I, I sort of, they were the one thing I guess I didn't lose. I mean, I did have to pivot them, as I mentioned before. I had to sort of reach a little bit less high than I had been previously. But I loved life so much. There were so many things that I hadn't yet experienced. I wanted to see the world. I always wanted to see the world. And I think it was sort of these excitements um, of what was possible and you know, how things could get better in the near future if I just held out a little bit longer. Um, and, you know, I did, I did get to experience all of those and I still am. <laughs> so um, why are you defining one set of goals higher than another set of goals? And why isn't really just, why wasn't it just the process of you sort of stripping off these, the, this sort of baggage that you are carrying from society or education or family and finding the essence of Max so that she could pursue what would really be her, her calling? Mm. Well, you know, I guess, and this is why, like, I don't want to give vocal examples exactly of what sort of the different tiers were, because I don't find any of them to be you know, I don't want to say that anyone is less than than the other, but I guess it was sort of just my choice A versus my choice B. And I sort of felt at the time like I had gone from A straight to Z. <laughs> um, so that was hard because I felt like it wasn't actually a choice, but it was more so just lost ability. You know, if I wanted to be a foreign service officer, I had to study like crazy. I had to read all of the books, take all of the tests. And I knew that that was no longer in the cards for me. Um, but what sort of happened was I ended up taking some time off of school because I was not doing well. Um, and this was in college. And I sort of started to train myself to utilize new methodologies for learning. Um, this meant a lot of like, you know, reading tools um, and also just really, really lowering, not lowering, pivoting um, my expectations and my abilities. So I started working like four different jobs. This was like full time and a half every week. And I was like, hey, like I'm working, I'm making money. Like there are some things I can still do, even if I can't read well and my processing is a little bit slower. 
I can still do what I want to do. I can still, you know, support myself. So I guess in the end, I ended up finding a way to still travel the world, still make the world a better place, but it was much better suited for my new brain. (laughs) So Max, talk to us about how you were ultimately diagnosed, because Matt is going to want to take you from that point forward. So talk to us about your diagnosis and how you received your Lyme disease diagnosis. Yeah, this was fun. Um, (laughs) I... I was lucky enough to not be going from doctor to doctor to doctor and having, you know, my questions unanswered. I had epilepsy and, you know, I deeply, deeply, deeply know that that is connected to my Lyme disease. So I did have the sort of denial um, from doctors about that and why I had epilepsy all of a sudden. Um, However, my Lyme diagnosis was a little bit easier than some other people's luckily. I was at a sleepover with a friend and we were watching a movie and I think it was my right eye kept tearing up. It was just like crying, like, you know, only one of my eyes and we were laughing about it and joking like, oh, that's so weird. Your eyes keeps crying. (laughs) And then when we woke up in the morning, we were all eating breakfast and my sister was there as well. And she looks at me and she's like, why are you doing that weird smile? And I felt something was off, but I hadn't seen it. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, no, other people are noticing something's wrong. So I called my mom and my mom freaks out because she thinks I'm having a stroke. We call my neurologist. My neurologist freaks out because she thinks I'm having a stroke. And I end up in the ER and I had, you know, your classic case of Bell's palsy. Um, half of my face muscles being paralyzed temporarily. Um, And, you know, luckily I was at a really good hospital and the ER doctors like put a Lyme test immediately into, um, you know, what they wanted to look at. And I was lucky enough that my results actually showed up because I know that a lot of times they don't. So yeah, luckily it was a little bit more streamlined for me, but I was told years, years, years later that, you know, if you get caught with Lyme disease through Bell's palsy, then that means you already have late stage Lyme and you're (laughs) essentially you're screwed is what I was told. Um, but I didn't know, you know, the ER doctor certainly didn't tell me that I had late stage Lyme because, you know, how many doctors believe in chronic Lyme disease. So that's how it went. And I went on, I think it was, it was two or three weeks of doxycycline, like almost everyone else. And I continued to get worse um, for almost 10 years. (laughs) Max, before you got your diagnosis from the Bell's palsy, a year before you started having the seizures, did any doctor at any point, at any time ever suggest Lyme disease prior to that? No. Uh, No, what they did was they basically said, we have no idea why you have epilepsy. And then they just stopped exploring. They didn't, they didn't really look for answers. And were you sick prior to having seizures? Meaning, do you think that you could have been possibly fighting off Lyme disease and keeping it at bay for years before developing your seizures? Yes, uh, I do think that. Um, Again, like I, I think at the time I didn't think that there was something happening. I just figured like, oh, I'm exhausted. I'm having attention problems. This is probably natural. Um, But, you know, looking back from, from today, 
I was definitely not doing great before the seizure started. And I do feel that had it had at least been a good chunk of time um, for my symptoms to start strengthening. Max, do you think your age and or gender played a role in dismissing your symptoms prior to your seizures? I mean, that's a great question. I would say most definitely. I mean, if you have a kid in your doctor's office, you know, a lot of kids I think get played off as sort of hypochondriacs and I'm not going to lie. Like I was a bit of one too. Like I, uh, I used to dramatize probably a lot of things when I was like a young kid, but at this point I wasn't so young, you know, I was a teenager, but teenagers have this reputation for being dramatic. Um, and when the doctor who is, you know, the adult in the room and who is also the professional, um, is, you know, checking you out and not really running any real tests, but basically just like looking at me and checking my blood pressure and stuff and not really finding anything. Um, yeah, they, they shrug you off. So I think age definitely has something to do with it. Gender, you know, I don't know. Gender almost always has something to do with everything. (laughs) Um, but interesting enough, like I do remember the one test that they would run that like always came back strange was my blood pressure. And they always told me it was a little bit low, um, but it was nothing to worry about. And then, you know, now, now my blood pressure is always normal, never low. So I just find that interesting. Max, before we explore your diagnosis and treatment that you just mentioned earlier, I want to ask if you can provide any tips or tricks for people that are having seizures due to Lyme disease that helped you before you actually realized it was Lyme causing your seizures. Oof. You know, unfortunately, I don't think that I had very many tools in my toolbox until much later on. Um, You know, before the Lyme diagnosis, I was pretty much just suffering. I can definitely share some tips that I, that I gained, you know, much later, but at the beginning I was sort of just (laughs) a little bit helpless. And we'll definitely get there, Max. But now were you prescribed any anti-seizure medications by your neurologist pre-diagnosis that helped you at all? Yes, I was. Um, and that's a whole other story, but the first one that I was prescribed with, it helped with seizures, but you know, it also made me very, very, very depressed, very anxious, and even more tired than I already was. Um, and this was during the period that I made my attempt. Um, so not a good drug. And then the the second drug, um, they all helped a little bit with the seizures, but not, you know, I was still having quite a few. Um, the second one, I ended up hospitalized with a one in a thousand chance, uh, potentially fatal rash all around my body. And this was actually another time where I was denied by a doctor. I had gone to the ER three days before the rash showed up. And I said, I have this headache. I feel like there's, my brain is going to explode out of my ears. Like it was the worst pain I'd ever been in my life. And they just sent me home. They said, you're fine. Take Tylenol. (laughs) And then three days later I came back and I was like, what about now? Do you see me? (laughs) And they had to, you know, pump me up with all the Benadryl and steroids they had. Um, So that was that for that one. And then finally they put me on the third one, which I'm still on today. Um, And that one has been the most effective, the least amount of side effects. Um, And, you know, with the seizure thing is a journey and and I'll talk about that later. But at the time I was still having quite a few, but it was definitely better than it was off of medicine. 
And Max, understanding that everybody's different, are you comfortable sharing what the third medication is that finally worked for you to help with the seizures? Yeah, um, it's called Keppra. So that's the one that I currently take. And it's known to have the least amount of sort of like mood effects um, and other physical uh, ailments. The first one I was on, which I'd also like to sort of highlight, is called Depakote. And I ended up going to a new neurologist um, who basically told me that my first neurologist was a lunatic um, because she said that Depakote causes infertility um, in young women and that she had no business putting me on that. So, <laughs> And Max, thinking back to the year before your diagnosis in the Bell's palsy, it seems like you were playing whack-a-mole with your symptoms that you were treating your seizures and while you were reducing your seizures, the symptoms and the, and the side effects of these drugs created new symptoms that they were attributing to just side effects of the medication and not really saying they could be symptoms of Lyme disease potentially. So do you think the treatment of the misdiagnosis of having a seizure disorder prolonged your diagnosis over that one year period? Yes, yes I do. Um, because a lot of the side effects that my really heavy duty and high dose uh, anti-seizure medications are similar to some of the earlier, you know, side effects of Lyme disease. So, you know, to this day, I'm still confused about, you know, which ones were being caused by, by, you know, which problem. And I guess at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter because, you know, either way I was sick. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really confusing time and I was constantly anxious over what was causing what, and, you know, you know, trying to figure out whether or not I was, I was sick, essentially. And I think a good tip from that is if you're struggling to get a diagnosis from Lyme or a co-infection or anything, don't attribute a side effect that you believe to be from a current medication to be solely related to a side effect. It could be a symptom of an underlying other illness keeping you sick. So I think that's something to keep in mind for our listeners. Now let's go on to your actual diagnosis. And now you were diagnosed by the ER neurologist and prescribed antibiotics. So what antibiotics were you prescribed and for how long were you on them for? Yeah, it was doxycycline and I, it was either two or three weeks. And you mentioned that they didn't help, that you actually felt worse. So talk to us about the interaction between you and your doctor as you're on the antibiotics and you're feeling worse and what his or her response was to you getting worse while on the antibiotics. Yeah. So because this was an ER doctor, it was sort of our first and last um, and only correspondence. They, you know, wrote me the prescription. I took it home. I took it. And unfortunately, I can't remember specifically how long the period of time was before I said like, okay, you know what? I need to go talk to someone else because it's something still isn't right. Um, but basically, and going back to your last question, I think it took me a little bit too much time to sort of make this uh, judgment call that I was still ill because I was on these anti-seizures and I was having seizures and I just, you know, I could not understand what was causing what. So I'm not sure exactly how long it took me, but, you know, eventually um, not too long down the road, I had just like a routine blood test from my uh, primary doctor. And, you know, that came back, uh, positive again. So we did the exact same thing. Um, I think it was, you know, either, cause I know the, the, you know, CDC guidelines or whatever changed a little bit recently. So I don't remember if it was two or three weeks, but one of those, and then, you know, more time passed and it was the same stuff. Um, 
what is my medication? What is Lyme disease? So I think, you know, a decent amount of time passed again. And I Max, to- I'm sorry to interrupt, but before you go on with that, when you saw your primary care doctor after the first round of antibiotics from the ER doctor, you told your primary care physician that you were worse from the antibiotics, but you still had a positive Lyme test. What was his reaction to that, that you were feeling worse? And then he just continued to prescribe you basically the same thing again. Yeah. I mean, at this time I had started to begin my journey on being Lyme literate. I had been doing some research. So I remember asking her like, Hey, do you believe in chronic Lyme disease? Um, can you point me to a doctor who does? And I remember her answer just being very vague and not really giving me a yes or no, which, you know, I sort of took that, (laughs) um, as a no, and I really liked this doctor, by the way, she, she, she had been an amazing caregiver my whole life, but, you know, she wasn't really answering the question in any way, shape or form. Um, so I found that really interesting because I had been reading about a lot of people having that very, very experience. And so having it myself was, was a little bit odd and very unsettling and didn't make me feel very good about the future. <laughs> But this is an example, Max, of your self-advocacy where you were researching and bringing that information to your doctor and then getting this unsettled feeling to say, maybe it's time to move on to another doctor who is more Lyme littered, it sounds like. Yeah, um, that that was definitely the beginning of a very long journey of having to make sure that I had all of the right questions prepared. And now your, your primary care doctor issues you the two or three weeks of doxycycline again for the second round, you feel worse again, you don't get any better. When you go back to her, what happens then? Is that when you decide to go see a specialist? You know, what happens at this point when you're now two rounds in and you're still not any better? Yeah. So I I, I went through the round, didn't help at all. So I did ask her for a recommendation for a Lyme specialist. Um, even though I knew that she, you know, wasn't vocally confirming the existence of chronic Lyme disease, I was like, I don't know where else to go. So I'm just going to go to her recommendation, hope for, you know, hope that they're better. So she recommended me to a local infectious disease specialist. Um, so I went to him, uh, I brought up the same questions, chronic Lyme disease. I, I basically wanted to get him to confirm that he, you know, knows that it it exists before we went any further. Um, But I was also desperate and, you know, people kept giving me his name over and over again. He's the best. He's the best. So I ended up going with him anyway, because I didn't know where else to turn. But in his office, I, I asked him the same question and he essentially said, you know, there's no proof, there's no evidence out there. So I think he was trying to be careful. Like he seemed like maybe he was slightly more open-minded to the idea, but just didn't, you know, there's no confirmation is what he said. Um, So I think he was choosing his words carefully and he was definitely going to give me the recommended treatment, just like everybody else. Um, That was the vibe I got, but I decided to go with it anyway, because again, I was desperate at this stage and I didn't know where else to go. So yet again, (laughs) three weeks of doxycycline um, with no, no hope really in sight of exploring, you know, any other treatment methodology. And Max, talk to us in more detail about what actually got worse in regard to your symptoms. So when you took the doxycycline for these three rounds, what actually 
happened and how did you feel that was different than when you were on the doxy? So, and I can't confirm this medically because I'm just not really sure, but the sort of vibe that I was getting from every round of doxy was I did, and it could have been placebo, but I don't, I don't know. I sort of felt like I would have like this short period, like maybe a couple of months or so where I did feel a bit better, but then it would like very, very quickly sink down. So I don't know if that was, you know, just in my head or if the doxy was potentially like knocking it down a little bit, but not completely. I don't know. Um, but you know, the, the worst of it was just like the prolonged inability to read. Um, you know, I was sleeping 14 to 16 hours every single night for almost a decade, which when you sleep that much, how can you do anything else? Um, you know, I was in school, I had to have a job. So I, you know, my whole life was like over full time and I was sleeping 14 to 16 hours a night. So that was the hardest part. Like that was my worst symptom was the fatigue um, and keeping up with my, my job, my school, my friends. Um, but I was also having really intense anxiety that worsened over time. I was having panic attacks. Um, there was a time where I went on to like an antidepressant for the first time in my life, which really scared me. Um, but I felt like the whole time that it was wrong because I felt like I was sort of just putting a mask onto another symptom that was being caused by something else, as opposed to like a natural sort of chemical, uh, imbalance that was occurring in my brain. Um, I also went on Adderall because I, I actually begged, I begged my doctor. They did uh, another IQ test. They didn't it didn't come back saying I had ADHD or anything, but it did show the cognitive decline. And I begged her, I said, look, I'm not going to pass college um, or high school without, without Adderall. So she was like, all right, we'll try it. And eventually I came to the conclusion again, that I was just masking up a symptom of a greater problem. And if I kept masking, then I might not ever actually address the root of the issue. So fatigue, anxiety, depression. Um, those were the worst ones. And over time and the seizures, of course, over time, I just started having like new diagnoses just pile on top of each other. Physically, there came a time where neurologically I came to the conclusion that like I was in trouble. Um, I was in a lot of trouble and I had to deal with it as soon as possible. Um, so, you know, they found fibromyalgia in my knee, uh, they found trigeminal neuralgia behind my right eye, which was the side I had Bell's palsy. And I just had shooting pain behind my eye in my ear um, constantly. I had a problem with my, my vision and my nerve in my eye. And <laughs> I want to say a note about this. The day that I was at my eye appointment, this eye specialist he saw the nerve problem in my eye. He gave me some sort of antibiotic um, eye drops. And he basically was like, I don't know really why this is happening to you. This usually doesn't happen to young people. And I said, well, you know, I've had neurological Lyme disease for almost 10 years. And he was the very first doctor who basically acknowledged how real that was. And he said, you need to figure this out today because this is not good. Um, and I cried in his office. I actually cried because he was an eye doctor 
um, acknowledging the severity of my problem and saying like, yeah, you have nerve damage in your face and your eye because you've had Lyme disease for years. So that was very pivotal. <laughs> That's what I'm struggling to comprehend, comprehend. And what is making me so frustrated is the fact that you suffered for a decade. You had a positive Lyme diagnosis numerous times. You were treated inadequately, but yet no doctor after that ever said, hey, all of these common Lyme symptoms that you're experiencing could be related to your failed treatment for Lyme disease 10 years ago. That never happened until your eye doctor. Correct. <laughs> and Max, talk to us more about your vision problems, because we've been hearing more and more people having vision problems and eye problems due to Lyme disease. Can you explain to us what those symptoms were like for you? So people that are experiencing similar eye problems can maybe correlate that back to their Lyme disease. Yeah. I mean, I'll start out by saying that that was probably one of the scariest symptoms that I've had. Um, you know, I can handle pain in my knee, but if you start messing with my eyes, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. So for me, luckily it's all cleared up now, but every once in a while I have like a couple seconds of pain, but I had been struggling with uh, nerve pain in the right side of my face in different, you know, different forms for the entirety of my Lyme journey. Um, started out with Bell's palsy and then it was um, trigeminal neuralgia. And then, you know, suddenly it was specifically in my eye and I was, it was, it was very pain oriented. Um, there was pain almost 24 seven. It got worse when I would turn, um, you know, look to the side. Um, and it also was shooting back, you know, behind my cheek and behind my teeth. So it wasn't just my eye, but it felt like the eye was sort of the root. Um, and with the pain, things started getting blurry only in that one eye. Um, and I mean, it was really, really, really scary. So I did not put it off. I got myself in immediately, uh, to an eye specialist, you know, lose, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle not being able to see properly. And luckily, you know, he gave me eye drops that were antibiotic and they, they did help. They did fix it. But, you know, the doctor made it very clear that the problem would persist if I didn't take care of the root. Max, I can't help but think back to you talking about you were getting diagnosed with all these psychological conditions and then being treated for ADD and depression and anxiety. Do you think that doctors over this 10 year window were just again, once again in your, in your journey, misdiagnosing you and attributing all of your other symptoms to being psychological, even though there were valid physical symptoms that were related to Lyme disease? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, like I did have anxiety, I did have depression, and I probably had some sort of like synthetic form of ADHD. So, you know, I did have these issues, but they were all what felt to me as, you know, manufactured from the root problem, which was Lyme disease. So yeah, it's interesting, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess it was misdiagnosing, but you know, these were all these were all coming from the Lyme. So I needed to deal with them, but it was impossible to deal with them properly without dealing with the Lyme disease. And I think it comes back to cause and effect that the Lyme disease was causing your symptoms, not that the symptoms as a whole were psychiatric causing all of your other symptoms that were physical and related to your mental health issues, it sounds like. And that's a very common problem we, we see with most of our podcast guests. So 
talk to us more now about your your this 10-year window. You were finishing up high school, you went to college, you were sleeping 14 hours a day. Were you able to get through school? And what was life like as as your early 20s came in and you started to, you know, get through college and move on with your adult life? How did Lyme impact your progression as an adult? Yeah, well, firstly, I want to say that when I was a kid, I wanted like I had my eyes and my heart and my mindset on, you know, Ivy League schools, the best possible colleges. And when it came down to applying for schools and choosing schools, you know, I didn't ha- I no longer had the grades. Um, I didn't really have anything anymore that would allow me to accomplish the goal, nor was I able to read. So in terms of college, I, I almost didn't go. I, I remember filling out an application for AmeriCorps because I wanted to travel. And I was like, let me just travel around the U.S. and help people. Um, and then maybe I'll revisit college later. But right now I don't feel capable. Um, <laughs> and what happened last minute was I got a letter in the mail from a college that was four years abroad. And I had never in my life heard of a school that would allow you to be abroad for the entire four years pretty much a different country every single semester. And the school was experiential learning based. Um, They focused on field trips and hearing stories from people, storytelling, um, critical thinking skills. And I was like, I can do all those things. (laughs) Um, You know, if this school is going to let me travel and they're not going to make me read, like, I can go to college. (laughs) So I went to college and I was living like this really interesting, like kind of extravagant, like exciting, adventurous um, life abroad, sort of living this life that like you wouldn't expect a sick person to be living, um, which, you know, is one of the problems of having chronic illness is, you know, the fact that a lot of times it can be invisible And people would look at me and I'd be traveling the world and be like, well, you don't look sick. (laughs) Um, You know, we get that a lot. But what happened was, you know, I started my first year in Costa Rica, um, had an exceptional time, learned a lot. But, you know, what it came down to was my school was semi-experiential learning. But then there were also definitely reading assignments, essay writing, and I sort of felt like I had been miss, uh, you know, sort of like missold to, I guess, um, false marketing. <laughs> so what happened was like finals week came and basically I had been excelling the entire year at sort of like listening, going to the field trips, retaining information. But when it came down to like doing the big assignments, I was just procrastinating, procrastinating forever because you know, I would read the same sentence 57 times and then still not know what it said. Um, So I didn't really know what else to do. This was another pivotal moment in my self-advocation because I started to fail my first, you know, semester of college and I never failed school. This was really terrifying to me. Um, So what I did was I ended up dropping out And my teacher, she convinced me, luckily, to do a temporary withdrawal instead of a full-on dropout. And she gave me six months to finish my finals, um, which (laughs) I actually ended up paying my sister to write my papers for me because I tried 
for months and it wasn't happening. And I figured if I ever want to go back to school, I need to get these papers in. So I paid my sister. She did a great job. (laughs) I passed. And um, this was the year of time where I started working a bunch of jobs. And, you know, I was working for four jobs at a time. And I sort of gained a lot of confidence in myself back, sort of understanding like, look, my skills in some areas like reading and writing are weaker, but I'm still capable of accomplishing things, of supporting myself, um, of being self-sufficient. So over this sort of year towards the end, having never having had any expectations of returning to school, I started having dreams almost every single night that I had rejoined my class um, and I was traveling through my dreams (laughs) with my friends from college. And after like a month of that, almost every night, I was like, you know what? I think I should go back to school. (laughs) So I went back to school and this time I went back with a determination to succeed in one way or another. And I, from then on out, I sat down at the beginning of every single semester with all of my professors and I laid, I laid it all down for them. I said, this is what's going on. This is what I can do. This is what I can't do. And I would really, really, really love it if you would help me to succeed in my education. And luckily all of my professors were amazing people and they wanted to see me succeed. So we would map out plans for me to get through every semester. And it was the hardest thing that I had ever accomplished in my life so far. Um, And there were moments, there were quite a few moments where I almost dropped out again. I almost quit, but, you know, I made it through and I still, I honestly, I still can't believe that I (laughs) finished. (laughs) But again, Max, this is just another sign of your perseverance, your determination and your strength that you were so sick, yet you got through college, you graduated and you were working multiple jobs at a time and still dreaming about your goals and having success and doing this while being mistreated and misdiagnosed by the medical community. So talk to us more about when your eye doctor basically said, this is temporary. You have to get deeper to, uh, to fix the root cause. What happened at that point? Did, it, did you go back to another Lyme litter doctor? How did you change your treatment and your health at that point once your eye doctor kind of helped you and pointed you back to Lyme disease again? Yeah. So, and before I jump into that, I do want to do like a quick, like pre precursor that right before I went to him, I also tried a natural path uh, doctor. Um, at, since nothing else was working. And, um, but what ended up with happening with her is that she was all out of pack, pocket, of course, because she was giving me like, you know, treating me with herbs and, and supplements and, and exercise um, regimens. So I couldn't afford her for like more than a couple of months. And I liked what she had to say, because she was basically telling me, you won't be able to get through this without also strengthening your body, because now your body is really, really, really weak. So if you have any sort of chance of fighting this thing off, you need to re-strengthen your body. Um, While I really liked her methodology in that, I always felt like I needed to do both, Um, you know, have antibiotic therapy while also doing natural things that would strengthen my body, because I think that that just clearly makes sense. (laughs) So I only stuck with her for a couple of weeks 
um, or a couple months, sorry, and then moved, you know, then the eye stuff happened after quite some time. Um, I think after the natural path doctor, I sort of just stopped trying for quite a while because I hadn't, I just like literally had no idea where else to go. Um, and it wasn't until things got really bad. I started getting the vision stuff, the eye pain. I started having um, tingling in my hands and like random muscle spasms. And I remember looking this up because it was, it was getting really bad and it was starting to scare me. And I remember making the mistake of Googling, though I do think it was good that I did it. Um, and reading that a lot of the symptoms I was having were like early stages of MS, um, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that I was starting to get MS. However, you know, a lot of us know that um, MS is one of the more common uh, long-term personifications of chronic Lyme disease. So that sort of lit a fire <laughs> uh, under me. And then the eye thing happened. And this eye doctor, I'm pretty sure that he himself gave me, or no, he didn't. Sorry, I get the story confused sometimes. But when he did that, I went back to Google. Um, instead of reading Yelp reviews and stuff, I was reading forums. I was on Reddit. I was on um, the iLads website. Um, and I found the doctor that I currently have, who's based in New Jersey. And I was like, wow, this is someone who supposedly treats aggressively and treats longer term Lyme, chronic Lyme patients. And she's only 45 minutes away from me. <laughs> um, so that's when I began my, began my journey with her and I'm, I'm still with her now. She was good. <laughs> Max, before you go there, you just gave us, I think, a really powerful framework that we should consider that I never thought about. We always think about healing from Lyme as a physical and an emotional journey that you have to have the right mindset. You have to have the self-advocacy and the determination and the drive to keep going despite all of the obstacles you face. And also you have to be willing to take all this medication and heal physically. But I think the physical part really, you just described is broken down into two pieces. In addition to being emotionally, you know, available to heal, you have to be able to heal physically by killing the bacteria, but also strengthen your body. And, it, and for people that are bed bound, that can mean simple stretches or, you know, light yoga. And then as you get stronger, doing more and more physically to sort of empower your body to heal with the treatment that you're getting for Lyme disease. Is that something that you felt was, was important in your journey? It was crucial. Um, I think it was actually the most important part. It was more important than the antibiotic treatments. It was more important than, well, probably equally important to the mental strengthening. I think for me, it was mental strengthening first, finding resiliency and bravery and self-advocacy. After that, it's like, if you've been sick for years, of course your body is weak um, and it's gonna keep getting weaker the longer you're sick. If you're laying in bed all day, every day, which I was, um, your immune system is probably compromised. Your back muscles became a noodle like mine. <laughs> I have the weakest back muscles. Um, you know, you're just, of course you're weak, of course. And if you start antibiotic treatment, you're going to get weaker because they are tough on your system. And that's, you know, that's not a mystery. We all know that. Um, so for me, I think it was, it was very clear and very important that if I was going to have successful sort of Westernized, um, you know, treatment that was going to work for me, that I was going to have to have a baseline of strength in my immune system, um, in my 
you know, body in general, and of course in, in mind as well. So I took to quite a few methodologies that I read about that I felt intuitively as well would help in, in that strengthening process. And I made sure that I was doing all of that before, before, during, and after antibiotic treatment. So it seems like this framework worked together because you needed the, the psychological and emotional strength to do your research, which allowed you to then find physical exercises to help strengthen your body to overcome your body being atrophied from being in bed all the time and also strengthen your body from a weakened immune system and just not moving. Mm -hmm. So give us an idea as to some of the things you did physically based on your learning that helped you and some basic tips because many of our listeners are not able to do full-on exercises to go for long walks or, or do anything too physical. But what are some tips you can provide to our listeners of, of exercises that people can do to help strengthen their body while healing both physically and emotionally from Lyme as well? Yeah. And I would say most of my methodologies aren't even exercise. Um, I have a couple of those, which I'll definitely share, but a lot of them are actually non-exercise methods. Um, so one of the things that I found to be most important is coming into direct contact with the earth um, as often as possible. Now that might sound like some hippy dippy crap, but <laughs> there's actually quite a few, um, you know, peer reviewed case studies that exist out there um, that directly being in contact with the earth it grounds your electricity. Now this is a, it's basic science actually. If you think about lightning, you know, the earth grounds electricity. Uh, basically humans, just like everything else, have a bunch of electricity running through um, our bodies. Um, and essentially we used to come, you know, in earlier versions of humans, we used to come into much, much more contact of the earth. And now if you think about it, it's really crazy, like how long we can go without doing that. You know, we're always wearing shoes. We're always walking on concrete and our shoes are non-conductive. So what I found in these case studies is that they're connecting younger generations with a bunch of autoimmune disorders, higher blood pressure, anxiety, depression, um, with the lack of contact that we have the earth, because we essentially have excess electricity running through our bodies at all time that we're supposed to be disposing of on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I've been walking barefoot since I was a kid. I think no one can sort of deny that it feels good. And I think it feels good for a reason, um, makes you happy, makes you feel grounded, um, so when I found these case studies, I was like, of course, yeah, like that makes so much sense. Um, and then from those case studies, I found, um, you know, people connecting their mattresses out their window to the ground and, you know, wearing shoes that are conductive um, so that they have this sort of grounding effect happening often. So I sort of made it an effort to make sure that I come in direct contact with the earth every single day because with Lyme and with epilepsy, um, obviously I have a lot of electricity running around my, my body. So that has been really, really, really good for me. Um, there's a shoe company that makes shoes that are conductive specifically for this. They have little copper plates on the bottom. Um, and, you know, there's a video where they measure, they use like a meter to measure the electricity in their body. It's like, I forget what number, but they've got a decent amount. And then they put their foot on the ground and they zero out 
And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. So that's one of my main methods. Another thing that I do is um, some light, basic cold therapy. Um, I read a lot about people doing, you know, cryotherapy, things like that. That's a little bit intense for me. I've never tried cryo, but I try to end every single shower with really cold water and some breath work that sort of helps, um, you know, calm down my natural instinct to hyperventilate. Um, And, you know, every time I do that or I jump into a cold ocean or a cold river, which I do as often as I possibly can, you know, there's this huge sense of invigoration and this type of cold therapy is proven to help uh, strengthen your immune support, um, strengthen your circulation. And I think that, you know, circulation and immune system support are two things that specifically, you know, Lyme disease patients have a lot of trouble with. So that has helped me immensely. Um, I take turmeric capsules every day because one of my Lyme symptoms is um, sort of gastric problems. I have a lot of stomach inflammation, um, which I've been hospitalized for. And so I take these turmeric capsules every day, which are sort of natural anti-inflammatories. And in terms of exercise, my current Lyme doctor informed me that oxygen kills bacteria. Um, running is really, really, really hard when you have Lyme disease, because, you know, for me, it feels like I'm full of bricks and like my body is just so heavy. So that wasn't really an option, but I do try to take long walks as often as possible, or at least a little bit of walking to get the oxygen flowing. And I have to say, like, I'm a little bit biased because I work in the virtual reality industry, but VR has been so helpful um, for me on my journey for quite a few reasons. The main reason is, as we all know, leaving the house, let alone getting out of bed, can be some of the most complicated tasks for someone with chronic Lyme disease. So what VR lets me do is let it lets me exercise right next to my bed. I don't have to get dressed. I don't have to go out. I don't have to get on a train or in a car to go to a gym or something. I play a game for like, (laughs) as long as I am able to have fun and I, and I sweat and I move. Um, So that has been really, really amazing. And then it's also great for the social aspect. Um, When you can't leave the house or get out of bed, you don't see your friends as much as you used to. You don't go to social gatherings. In VR, you can actually (laughs) hang out with your friends and meet new people in, you know, multiplayer virtual worlds um, where your hands are working exactly the way that they do in, in the real world. And you can hug and shake your shake hands and wave and, and talk to each other and like world hop. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are, that's a few things. Max, that was brilliant. So basically, you're, before you even entered the door of your Lyme literate doctor that you found from iLADS, you already had this, this overarching framework of saying, I need to heal emotionally, physically, and under physically, it was both strengthening your body and treating the underlying cause being the bacteria with Lyme. And you not only treated yourself and strengthened your body physically by doing physical exercise, you did other things like cold therapy and other tools that could help you strengthen your body in parallel. So now finding all this on your own, talk to us what you learned with your Lyme literate doctor and how you changed your treatment protocol now with your Lyme literate doctor. 
Yeah. Um, so I went in. She drew some really fun pictures on paper that gave me fun information. She's 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 a fun doctor. <laughs> um, she did my blood test and she explained some information that felt really basic that I was really, really surprised that I was just like completely in the dark about um, up until that day. Uh, she explained to me that there's a ton of different strands. I can't remember how many types exactly, but there's a lot of different strands. I want to say 16, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, and then of course there's all the co-infections. And then there's also um, mutated versions of Lyme disease that only exist in foreign countries. So this was all brand new information to me, which I could not believe. And, you know, we took my blood test. She also explained that most doctors um, take a standard blood test for Lyme that only can detect I think it was something like three different strands, but she was going to be using some sort of, you know, more in-depth test that was able to detect a bunch of strands. So this was all brand new information, which I thought was insane. Um, a couple of weeks later, I'm in her office again with the results and she found eight different strands of Lyme disease in my body. And that was shocking. And I could not believe that no one else was able to tell me that. And she had them all down by, by number. Each strand has a number. Um, and I had eight of them. So then she explained to me that two or three, something like that, at least half of my strands um, are completely incompatible with doxycycline. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned earlier um, in our chat that I did feel like a little bit better sometimes for a couple months after the doxycycline. And now I'm like, okay, maybe that wasn't placebo. Maybe it's because the doxycycline was able to eliminate like a couple of my strands, but I was still stuck with a bunch more. <laughs> um, so I can't say for sure, but I think it all makes sense. Um, and then of course, over time, your bacteria can sort of come back if you didn't get rid of them fully. So here I am with eight strands of Lyme disease, which aren't, you know, some aren't compatible with the drugs I had been taking for almost a decade. So she prescribes me with a new biotic, uh, antibiotic, and I don't remember the name, but I guess, you know, if anyone is interested, I guess you can reach out to me in, you know, directly and I can look into my medical records, but she gave me a new antibiotic that I'd never even heard of. And she put it on for a month. So already we were starting with more time than I had ever been on one for, and also just a different kind entirely. So I took the month, I went back to her doctor and we had a, another blood test. And, you know, usually like the antibodies, because they have to die, they have to leave your system. Um, you know, it, it, it takes longer than a month sometimes to get an accurate test, but we were doing it anyway um, to, to see if we should keep proceeding with more antibiotics. At this point, my results came back with five strands. So we had already made more progress than I was expecting, um, given that nothing had ever worked before and no one was able to sort of break it down with this much information. Um, so then she put me on a different antibiotic, explaining that, you know, she keeps me on the same one, my body can build up a sort of tolerance to it and might not be as effective. So she switched my medicine. She put me on another month, um, took that. 
And then again, we, we came back to the office. We retested me. Unfortunately, this time I was still at five. Um, and she did let me know that like, Hey, sometimes it takes time for it to leave your system. So we might've made progress, but you know, we need to keep going. Um, so what she did now is she switched me back to the first one, which seemed to work really well for me. And she told me that her goal was to get me to three strands. She was like, you know, if we can do more, that's amazing. But my goal is to get you to three. You'll be in much better shape. Um, I don't want you to get your hopes up for like full clearance. I do my third month on the first antibiotic again. And I go back and she calls me a couple of weeks later and she says, you have zero. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm so, pretty sure I didn't talk for like 30 whole seconds. Cause I was literally in shock. <laughs> and Max, how are you feeling at this point? Because obviously with the decline and the strains and the effectiveness of these different antibiotics, I'm assuming you were getting better and better from a symptomology standpoint as well. Oh no. Um, I was feeling way worse <laughs> than I was. Um, and that's actually, I'm glad you asked because she did warn me that that would happen. She gave me yet another bit of information that no one had ever told me before, which is as you start to kill off these bacterias, they basically die. And then the shells of them are sort of stuck in your body for, for like a couple weeks, a few weeks or something. So I basically had like all of these dead bacterial shells just like floating around in my, in my blood and in my body. And so she told me expect to get worse because when this happens, how or why I'm not exactly clear, but it does not feel good. And so she said, just flush with water, like just drink tons and tons of water. And hopefully like in a few weeks, you will have flushed all of those dead bacteria out of your body and you will start to feel better. So yeah, I would say like the first month, I just felt a little bit more tired, a little weaker. Second month, I felt way worse because this was when all of the shells were just floating around. Um, and then I, you know, and this was a whole journey in itself. She tells me that I'm better and I feel exactly the same. Um, reason being, I had been sick chronically for almost 10 years and I had so much work to do, um, body and mind, to strengthen myself to a point where I could feel a difference. Um, you know, at this point, a lot of my pain and a lot of my symptoms um, are not just actively from the Lyme disease, but they're also from damage that has been done over time from not exercising, from not being able to like function as a normal human being. <laughs> So yeah, and then that started a huge journey of um, sort of re-strengthening after 10 years of weakness. So at this point, you were having the bacterial load be almost eliminated, if not significantly reduced, but you think a lot of the damage from that bacteria over, the, over that decade, both physically and psychologically was still there that you had to address, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, being sick for that long, starting with mentally, um, I never had any time or space to like process what was happening to me because I was constantly just focused on survival for my baseline uh, goal, you know, keeping my head above water. So first step, I went to therapy <laughs> and I was like, 
I pretty much said, like, I don't know how to not be sick. I don't remember what that's like. I'm, I was really scared. I was also scared that I was going to tell people in my life, specifically superiors who had let me down in the past, I was going to tell them that my test results came back clear and that they were suddenly going to expect me to be, you know, perfect overnight and not sleep as much and be sharper mentally and all of these things. So, you know, again, with the self-advocation, I called my boss, I called my parents, I called my friends and I was like, look, I have great news. Um, I was cleared of active Lyme bacterias, but I need you to know so that I can be okay and succeed that this is going to be a long journey and process of re-strengthening. And I have no idea where I'm going to be able to get myself back to if I'm going to be able to ever feel like I did before getting sick, which I don't even remember what that was like. Um, or if I'm just going to feel a little bit better, um, because I'm weak, you know, I, I've been sick for so long. So I basically like made those calls and luckily everyone in my life was very, very understanding and said that they had no expectations of me being better, you know, right off the, the bat. So Max, it sounds like there was a fear of being healthy and managing the expectations of people in your life to being completely healthy again. Totally. I, I was terrified. Um, and this was, you know, another time where I went on to an anti-anxiety. I felt more panicked after, you know, being told that I didn't have Lyme anymore than I did when I had Lyme. <laughs> because at least when I had Lyme, I was like used to it. I had almost 10 years to get used to being sick and like my new normal. And I wanted to get better, but I honestly, at that point had zero expectation that I was ever, ever going to be told that I was clear. And so now I was like, oh my gosh, like I sort of, you know, it took me like three, four years to start wrapping my head around my new brain. And now I have another new brain maybe, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so it sounds like there's, there's so many layers to healing that and you healed physically from the bacteria, but there was residual damage and that damage was both physical and emotional that you had to address after getting the bacterial load decreased in your body. And how did you do that? Right? So what was your Lyme litter doctor telling you that you should do now that you had zero strains left in your body? And what were you doing on your own from your research to kind of bounce back from this now? Yeah. So she, to be honest, she didn't tell me much. Um, she was really great during the pre and during, but like, didn't have too many tips to give about post. Um, she did say like, make sure you're exercising oxygen keeps, uh, kills bacteria, make sure you're eating well, keeping your immune system strong. These are all things that I was already like trying religiously to do, um, out of fear of it coming back. Uh, she also made it clear that, you know, Lyme disease never completely leaves your body. It becomes dormant in your deep tissues and things like that, especially if you had it chronically. Um, so she said, you know, there's, there's always potential that you're going to have to see, see me again, and we're going to do some more treatment, but, you know, here's a couple of things you can do, um, you know, to hope that that doesn't happen. But a lot of the work for me was mental. It was like, I had almost a decade worth of trauma. And I think that that's a very, um, you know, fair word to use for this, that I now had more time and space to be able to process 
So one of the first things I did was I started going to therapy. And for the first three months, that was so hard because I had to leave my house. I had to either take a metro or drive to this place. I had to make sure I had quarters for the meter. I had to, you know, cross the street and walk upstairs. And I was still feeling really sick at this point because I, I, I didn't feel physically better for at least six months. That's when it started to like, feel like, okay, I feel like I'm getting better now. Um, but making a commitment to going to therapy, it was the same old stuff. I missed a lot of sessions, just like I missed school, just like I missed days of work. Um, but over time it got better and, you know, you open your mouth for the first time to talk to someone who's completely objective and doesn't know you, doesn't judge you. And I realized like, I've been through some stuff (laughs) and I can't believe that I made it like, you know, I made it through. So therapy was so crucial. And I think I don't think anybody can really like do this by themselves. Like you have to have someone to talk to. It's just way too much that you have to go through alone. And, you know, I was always opposed to therapy. My mom, this whole journey was saying like, please go. Cause she saw me breaking down over time. And I had such a wall up about it. But I think what it was is I literally just, you know, anything, anything other than getting out of bed was extra. And I just did not have the energy. Um, So finally getting there was one of the best choices that I had ever made. Max, let me ask you a hard question. Do you think that if you started therapy earlier on in your journey when you were much sicker, it would have been beneficial at that time as well? Yes, (laughs) Um, absolutely. But I also don't judge anyone who doesn't because I know how hard it is to get yourself from point A to point B. Um, I would say now that, you know, like COVID era is sort of normalizing like remote everything. My therapist and I have been, you know, doing sessions through Skype for the last year And I think that that's going to become a much more normal um, thing. So, I mean, I can't stress enough how important I think therapy is because you might have good friends, you might have good family, but, you know, they worry about you. And I know that I constantly filter myself because I don't want my loved ones to know exactly how badly I'm doing. Right. Um, So if you're going to make any real progress, you need to make sure that you're talking to someone where you don't have to filter yourself at all. Max, do you think that filtering yourself or holding a lot of those feelings and emotions in will keep you sick and not allow you to heal? I think that mind and body are very deeply connected. Um, And I know that recent studies in the last couple of years have come out that sort of finally proved that. And so if you are in a weakened uh, mental state, which disease makes worse and then mental, you know, state makes disease worse. It's like this really, really detrimental uh, cycle. So Max, was there anything else you did? You mentioned that it took about six months after your clearance from your doctor that you actually made significant progress in, in treating your Lyme disease and you 
you attribute a lot of that to your therapy. Was there anything else you did to let your body reset and help yourself heal from all this trauma of over a decade? Yeah. I mean, I continued to do all of the things I was doing before, you know, earth contact, cold therapy, um, vitamins and supplements, light exercise. But one of the pivotal things that I did was um, this was right at the start of the pandemic was, you know, during the time that I was like in my sort of remission, I would say um, recovery state. And I ended up leaving Brooklyn, which is where I was living at the time to move in with my mother in rural Pennsylvania for what I thought was going to be like a month. No one knew the pandemic was going to, you know, last that long at the beginning. Um, And it turned into three months. And because she lives in the middle of the woods um, with, you know, right on the Delaware river with hiking and all this stuff, like when you're sick or, or when you're recovering, being in a city is really scary at least for me like I had so much anxiety and you know you have to leave your apartment door and there's cars and there's people everywhere and loud sounds and people are like sometimes talking to you um and everything there just felt so much harder while I was in this weak state and so when I put myself into more of a natural nature environment as I was healing it just felt a lot more possible. And I felt like there weren't eyes on me watching me be weak. You know, I had, I had a lot more freedom. I felt like to heal in peace, um, away from the hustle and bustle and the concrete. Max, we know that Lyme put your brain in that fight or flight mode and your body becomes just overwhelmed to begin with. So do you think that putting yourself in a scenario like being in a city that's overwhelming in itself is just making that problem even worse and people should step back and try to reduce that, that overwhelming sense and, and try to step back a little bit in their healing journey to let their bodies heal and not make it harder for themselves to heal. Yeah, I think so. I, and I know that it's a lot easier said than done for a lot of people. Like, you know, their lives are there. You can't just up and move sometimes, but if you have an option or you have an ability to sort of relocate to a quieter, more peaceful place, I do highly recommend that, especially if you're someone who naturally without being sick um, gets a little bit overwhelmed from being overstimulated, from having to pass 200 people to go to your bodega. (laughs) Um, You're not going to do well in that setting while you're chronically ill. (laughs) Max, my final observation and question for you is that you were clearly very, very sick. You couldn't read. You had trouble communicating. And we've been on now for several hours, including the pre-interview. How is your health today? I mean, it seems like you made a major, major transformation. So how, how are you feeling today and how would you assess your health today? You know, the timing of us uh, doing this, this podcast is very ironic. Um, for the past, uh, I don't even know, I guess it's been like a year and a half or so, almost two years since I was cleared. Um it has been such a beautiful uphill climb. Um, It sort of feels like re-entry to society almost. (laughs) Um, And, you know, month by month, I've been getting stronger mentally and physically, doing a little more exercise, doing a little bit more, you know, cognitive work, um, finding myself 
become more successful in, in work and in social relationships. Um, and it, I mean, it's been really, really beautiful because I have sort of re-reached this point that I didn't think was possible for me to get to um, for many, many, many years. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, a couple of months ago, I did start having some of the same neurological symptoms that I was having towards the end where I was getting a little bit worried. And I was like, you know, I do need to find someone who will help me solve this right now. Um, so I, I am pretty positive that I'm having a bit of a relapse with the Lyme and I'm seeing my Lyme specialist in three days. Very, very, very excited for that. So today I am much, much, much better than I was, um, a couple of years back but I am also experiencing a little bit of a bump. So with that comes a lot of fear, a lot of kind of like PTSD, to be honest. Um, and it's funny, I'm actually worried that the test is going to come back negative. Isn't that odd? It's like, because I had so much experience with like having symptoms and being told nothing's wrong with you that I like, even with Lyme disease, I'm like, just give me a positive test and let's fix this. Cause if it's not positive, then I'm going to feel crazy. Like I was sort of feeling with doctors in the past. <laughs> so I kind of want it to be positive. Um, at least then I know like, you know, work can be done and yeah. So I'm very nervous, anxious, and I'm also having symptoms that aren't comfortable. Um, but simultaneously I know deep, deep down that if I was able to fight off eight strands um, that were strengthening and multiplying over 10 years, I will certainly be able to fight off whatever little bits have come back. Um, so I'm really just excited to see my doctor in three days and just like, you know, take care of it. And I would also like to say to the listeners that if you are able to make it to a point where you're, you know, technically cleared of active Lyme bacteria get a blood test like every six months after that, which I failed to do. And I am now regretting, but I think after this time and after I get cleared again, which I know will happen, um, I'm going to religiously go for follow-up exams every six months to make sure that I don't get to this point where I'm having neurological symptoms. Cause I don't think that it's necessary. So let's talk about not just the beauty of your journey of achievement, but your journey of transformation. And we've touched upon this a little bit when you and I were talking earlier, Max. Um, share with our listeners what part of this journey you would not give back, the beauty of the transformational nature of this journey and why you wouldn't give it back. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give back any of it. Um... I say this all the time and I sort of touched on it a little bit earlier, but I remember the person I was before I got sick and I liked that person. Um, she was kind and smart, good at school, good friends. Um, and now I feel like this entire journey that I've been on, I've been able to just build upon the person who I already liked to an exponential rate. Um, adding the greatest uh, bit of strength. You know, now I'm happy about how I perform. 
um, at work, as a friend, as a partner. Um, and all of that is due to the strength that was birthed out of all of this. And I think that the self-advocacy part was the part that really changed my life in a positive way. Um, for example, you know, I self-advocate now when I'm thinking of, you know, a new romantic partner, I am, I don't put up with anything anymore. So that really streamlines my process <laughs> for finding someone really good. And when you have someone really good um, in any type of relationship to you, it enables you to be really good. If they're treating you well, you can treat them well. If they're treating you badly, well, it also can bring out some ugly in you. So all of the strength and all of the self-advocacy has made me sort of demand that I'm surrounded by the highest quality people and that everything I do is done with intention um, and that everything I do is, is something that I want to do or that will better myself or my loved ones in one way or another. So now let's talk about your trip home to Pennsylvania that you're going to engage in today. And when you get home and you hug your mom, what if you find a tick biting her on her shoulder immediately upon you arriving home? What would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on a difficult chronic Lyme disease journey? Yeah, and hopefully nobody um, sues me for this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, personally, what I would do is um, I would have her save the tick. I would have her bring it into a lab, but I would also get her on antibiotics ASAP, like the same day. I would not wait for results. I would do everything I could um, to get her prescription. And I would also make sure that, you know, she's doing exercise or supplements or whatever it is that she's doing things that keep her immune system strong, her mind strong. And I would take her to my doctor. <laughs> Waste no time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Max Noir. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Max and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her Instagram page at max.n0ir. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or on our website. Thank you for listening.